Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Pianci. I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm doing good. It's early for me, so <clears throat> I've got a nice cup of coffee here. Today, we're joined by good friend of the podcast and uh, formerly, I t- still, the richest man in the world. You might not have heard of him for some reason, but Colin Platt, uh, what a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing very well. Uh, it is not early here, but I haven't started on the beer yet. So, well, this is coffee, just so everyone knows. I'm not. I'm not getting totally wasted yet. We've got. We've got the brief window here between when Cass starts drinking coffee and before St- Colin starts <laughs> drinking beer that we can get this podcast recorded. <laughs> we do have a nine-hour time change between us, though. So. Yeah, I mean, hey, I, I could. I guess I could throw some whiskey in here, but we're gonna. We're just gonna move on. If in, in case anyone is unfamiliar with why I say. Colin Platt is arguably the richest man in the world. Colin, can you explain can you explain PTK to everybody? Yeah, so in 2018, um, I and a bunch of guys uh, got together at this conference in Seoul, South Korea. We showed up early to the conference and we were at the hotel where it was going to take place. And this was right after kind of the, the top of the top of uh, crypto in 2017. Uh, I think it was like April 2018. So things were just kind of just coming down. But there was still this kind of feeling of, you know, it could all come back. And a lot of us kind of had uh, seen the good and the bad. uh, And there was a lot of bad in 2017. Um, There's no hiding that. And we said, well, you know, there's enough of us around the table. We're going to be at this conference the next couple of days. Like, let's just make our own stupid token and like sell it to ourselves. And so we came up with just like the worst idea of a white paper, just, you know, whatever word salad we could throw together. Uh, and I think it was like a gray paper and it was, we made text that was like light gray over dark gray. And it was just, the whole thing was horrible. And then all of us speaking at the conference just started dropping this in, like on every panel we were in, you know, I was the chief pseudoscientist. Uh, we had somebody that was developer advocacy. There, there was no development. Like we just made the whole thing up. And after the conference and during the conference, actually, we had a bunch of people coming up and actually asking us to invest into this project and people wanting to credibly put in sizable chunks of money. And it, it went on for a couple of months. So the following year, uh, same conference again in Seoul, South Korea in, in 2019, we decided that like I was going to get up and give a presentation about this. And it was in this giant stadium. Like I think it was the main stadium in Seoul and thousands and thousands of people there, including people from the government. And I gave, got up and gave the speech about how great PTK was. And, and the basic idea of PTK is you could never sell it for less than it was sold previously. So the number can only go up. So best cryptocurrency ever. Um, this was well before, you know, Ohm or Ichi or any of these great things that we've seen, which basically tried to, to build this for real. And I gave this whole speech. Uh, one of the slides, it was, you know, the value of PTK. Um, and, and I'll come back into it. But it was basically... quadrillion dollars and that is three times the value of all the money in the world it was at the time i'm sure it's much much less because of all the money printing or whatever bitcoiners tell us happened (laughs) so maybe only two times now um but basically it was this giant picture of you know this orange blob that was the ptk logo overshadowing the earth um and at the end you know i said this whole thing is a joke and uh, i got a bunch of nasty to like tweets from people in in the south korean government that were in attendance about how this is so horrible but it was a lot of fun um <laughs> it wasn't just doing a presentation um like 
I actually launched this token and wash traded it with myself on on a dex that predated Uniswap and actually traded it up to this valuation. It's just like every time I trade it, I'd only trade it higher, higher, higher. <laughs> and I wrote a whole blog post about this. It got covered in the Financial Times. It got covered in the block. It got covered in a bunch of things. And it was just a really like good joke. Uh, and it showed how ridiculous a lot of uh, the industry was, particularly in 2017 and 2018, about these fantastic valuations. Um, in actual fact, it was all people trading amongst each other, people trading very small amounts and, and massively inflating. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen still, but the industry has changed a bit. <laughs> um, but it, it was just pointing out um, where we were, where we stood in, in 2018, 2019 in, in the industry. And I'd say since then, I'm with you guys. I'm still very critical about a lot of things, but I think a lot of things have improved and have moved on. And thankfully... We have less 2017-style ICOs. We have lots of other things that we can critique, but at least it's it's a new scam that we're running now. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I think it's good that you you explained uh, much of this, but I do think there's another point that, that you didn't go into detail in, and I think a, a lot of our audience could probably help, it would help them to understand how this made you exactly the richest person, but you you mentioned you alluded to it just now, which is that you were wash trading with yourself. You were wash trading this this token. Uh, for anyone who's unaware, wash trading is basically selling and buying an asset to yourself, right? There's no other parties involved. You're just selling it to increase the volume and apparently the price as well. Uh, sometimes, if you want to, I guess. Uh, but if you could explain how that mechanism works. Yeah, so so obviously this is much more widely known with, with Uniswap kind of being very prevalent. Um, and I assume most people know what Uniswap is. If, if they don't, it's an automated market maker. Uh, it's, it's somewhat like a decentralized exchange, but you have to have liquidity on both sides. So you put in made up token and let's say Tether, because I know that's popular here. Um, <laughs> and I put in $5 of Tether on one side and then five of my made up tokens. That means that my token is now worth five, $1 each and there's $10 of liquidity in total. If I go in and I add one more tether in there, well, now there's six versus five, so the price has gone up. You can keep doing these things on very, very small amounts. Now, I, I talked about five of my tokens and five tether or six tether in here. I may happen to have another quintillion tokens out here, and if I'm marking them all against this price, that means what started out with just five tether and five of my tokens, so a $5 investment, quote unquote, I've now printed a quintillion tokens at that $1 valuation each. So there's no real backing, there's no market. Um, if I was ever gonna try to sell this with a third party, like if I tried to sell it to Cass, he would probably very rightfully give me zero. We're very close to zero because you know it has some <laughs> intrinsic value of being funny. Uh, but th that's kind of it. Um, like, there's no there's no notion that this should be really worth a dollar a token. It's just how it sits inside these. Because it's all decentralized and, and the exchange I was using at the time that predated Uniswap again, there's no checks and balances of who could put it in. Anybody could just create a pair, trade a pair. I could just go in with another account and trade against myself. There's no notion like what you would see in, inside of a regulated exchange of saying, well, A, you can't trade with yourself. And B, we need to know who you are before you can trade. And C, we need to do some checks before we even put this thing on. So even, even in the exchanges that probably get the most critique on this podcast, there there is some kind of processing to make sure that the, the token we're trading on isn't a token I just made up 30 seconds ago. Um, the people trading on this, well, they have some money in this account and there is some balance between how much is actually trading in existence and this value that's reported. 
it does screw up sometimes and we see these things show up on coin market cap or coin gecko or whatever else where you know a token will momentarily exceed the market cap of bitcoin so it's it's always good when the when the algorithms screw up and you see people trying to do the same thing yeah, P PTK was a really good exemplar of how a lot of the easy metrics in crypto are really easy to manipulate, like clearly in this case, market cap, where there was such a small float uh, inflated by such a small number of parties. Clearly, PTK is not representative of the broader cryptocurrency market, but there are many cryptocurrencies with quite a small float compared to their total supply being traded in relatively illiquid places. And you hear people discuss the dollar values of the market cap as though it's actual money. And I think PTK is a good reminder that like this paper wealth, this illiquid wealth is meaningfully different. You need someone on the other side of the trade to get any real value out of it. As an, as an aside, um, even before Home and some of those newer projects back in 2018 and 2019, there were also ICO projects that were promising that their price could only go up and you could uh, their price would be buoyed ever upward and was up was a, was a up? <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and uh i actually got a cease and desist letter from one of them so those claims have persisted i'm wondering um colin as somebody who's like you're obviously involved in the in cryptocurrency like you you trade you you do things regularly um i think you understood at that time when you created ptk that like wash trading was a real issue and i think you know, when we've ta previously talked about, like, for instance, Tether, I think a big issue that people would talk about was wash trading and how much how much of the volume of Tether in general was just wash trading. Do you think that's changed a lot? Like, do you think there's a significant diff difference now than, for instance, 2018? And if so, what is the new wash trading? Like, what is the new problem that is comparable to that? Yeah, so uh, l let me break that down because there's quite a bit in there. So um, do I think things have changed? Yes and no. I think things have definitely changed more in certain venues. It's a basic fact there is more regulation in 2022 for everything cryptocurrency and in particular exchanges. I say everything cryptocurrency. I'm going to leave DeFi things off to the side just for a moment. Every Everything that really existed uh, in 2017 now if it still exists, is more regulated. Um, so things like centralized exchanges, most all of them have at least some kind of basic KYC. Sometimes it only kicks in at a certain threshold. It's generally come down. In 2017, a lot of that didn't exist. There was, you know, Binance very famously was a no KYC exchange up until uh, the middle of last year, if, I, if I'm not incorrect. It may have even been in early 2022. But a lots of these things have made, I guess, democratize wash trading uh, really kind of a thing of the past just because it is a higher threshold to have to go in and set up five accounts that I set up, I send in, I do the KYC process. Sometimes that takes a couple of days, a couple of weeks. I can't trade with myself as I could before where I could just go spin that up with an API and have a hundred different exchanges, plug all, all those into some kind of AWS spot and run all those things through. It's just, it is harder. Now, does wash trading still exist in those venues? Absolutely. And some of those venues even encourage wash trading, uh, particularly to projects. It is still an industry. It does still exist. Now, when you say, sorry, tether, just to, uh, quick, quickly yeah. to interrupt you, sorry. But when you say the in, that projects can be like incentivized to, to wash trade, can you ex explain why, why you say that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so with exchanges that list tokens, generally they have metrics uh, set up. So there is a contract when they list a token for any type of token outside of the largest one. So generally there wouldn't be a contract for Bitcoin, Ethereum because they're just so large. They need to process those. 
generally a lot of the big stable coins, USDT, USDC, similar circumstances, they need them. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily go to Tether and say, hey, we'll list you because Tether would just say, well, you use us or they don't. Uh, USDC, similar at this point. They're just so big that exchanges need to use them. Now, I'm not going to get into all the arguments right away on all those, but you need a stable coin or a dollar or some kind of fiat thing, which means you need to have a bank account, which all all exchanges do. So they'll just let those things through. Now, anything smaller than that, uh, and we'll take even the bigger ends, things like XRP will actually go out and they'll talk to the exchanges. And this was actually quite widely broadcast that some of the exchanges, including Coinbase, took a long time to list them. There were um, things that got leaked out that they were paying to get onto different exchanges, including Coinbase. And this is very well known inside the industry. There are fees and payments to get any token on, even very popular tokens. Now they have a sliding scale, depending on how popular your token is, of what it costs to actually get listed. And different exchanges charge different prices based on this. But when you do this, there is a contract. And in that contract, it says things like, you need to have volume, you need to have uh, different metrics. The team can't you know, just run away and scam, otherwise we'll delist you and things like this. Things that you would expect to, to see when something's admitted for trading, not dissimilar from what you would wanna see at, you know. New York Stock Exchange or someplace like that. All of these things I would say are generally good practices. Now, inside some of those things, they do have metrics that, um, let's say, work better uh, if if it is a very widely traded asset. You know, having minimum volumes. We only want to list tokens that trade over a million dollars a day or ten million dollars a day, depending on the exchange. Not horrible ideas. Now. Um, That works very well in the traditional industry where you have market makers that do these things. Lots of market makers are actually paid to trade with themselves and trade with each other. So it's not not something that is unique to the crypto industry. And I wouldn't even say that it's quote unquote bad by itself to show that there's some volume in there. What they do, however, is because they have these very tight things on otherwise very liquid assets, what that means is you have very, very high relative to real external organic volume very high just internal trades happening in some of these things. And if you sit there and watch an order book, you can see these things happening, um, especially if you get out of the top you know, 50 to 100 tokens by market cap or by, by volume or whatever metric you want to use from a coin gecko and start looking down to you know 101 to 1000 that's listed. And if you look at some of these exchanges, because I talked about a listing coming um, kind of from the token project to be listed, you also have a lot of these exchanges that are very well known to just unilaterally do their own listing. And often this is a project that gets very popular kind of overnight and they just decide to list it. Um, and there was, uh, when Dogecoin got very popular and not very many exchanges had listed it, they went out and they started like trying to list this thing and trying to figure out how to do it. And they didn't know who to contact because, well, the original founder of Doge just kind of took off. So there are exchanges that go out and unilaterally do it, and they do it often very small tokens. And these tend to be East Asian exchanges, not exclusively. And they do run their own wash trading in some of these cases to show there's some kind of volume because they know they get business out of this. If a new token comes up on Uniswap, is the top three volume on Uniswap for three days, they want to be the first exchange to go in there because they know they're going to make a few hundred thousand dollars on fees. So wash trading does happen. (laughs) It can happen either because the project is incentivized to do it by the exchange, it can happen because the exchange is incentivized to do it, or it can happen because somebody is trying to incentivize other people to come trade on it. And they may have no relation to the exchange, they may have no relation to the project, they just know that if there is more trading volume, it's going to cost them a little bit of money and fees to the exchange, but that's going to make their token look more investable. So does it happen? Yes, absolutely. 
Some exchanges actively try to minimize that and only push towards organic volume. And even some of the exchanges that get criticized for not being necessarily the best exchanges um, from a regulatory point of view are ones that are very actively cracking down on that type of thing. So does it still happen? Yes, absolutely. And it's driven by different parties, depending on what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think the part of the dynamic that you pointed to there that I've heard about that is perhaps the most common reason and perhaps most troubling reason for the wash trading is that you'll have token teams who've conducted an ICO or an IDO or an IEO or however you distribute tokens nowadays will then want to get it listed. And as a requirement for that, the exchanges will often direct them to market makers who will effectively agree to wash trade them up to a certain amount of volume. And like that's that's a pretty common phenomena. It is. It's slightly different than that. So from what I understand and how it happens, so there are there are legitimate market makers out there. These are big entities that are that are very well known um, in the industry. And there's a bunch of different ways that they run. They're not necessarily the ones doing the wash trading. Often the wash trading will be done by a smaller, less known entity. Um, and not necessarily, they may be trading against the, the market maker. They may be a quasi market maker, but this is this is very different from, you know, if we talk about Alameda or Wintermute oh, yeah, yeah. are it, two very well known it's names. It's generally not one of like the big five, but like they're they're still nominally market makers. Generally, these tend to be very small shops of people set up in you know small countries um, that are just doing this and saying you know I will trade uh, you know half a million dollars in volume a day and I'll go and do it very small size and I've got a little bot that runs. That's that's kind of how they do that thing. It's just one of those troubling incentive issues because it makes sense why the exchange wants them to have a certain visual amount of volume and it makes sense why the token wants to get listed and it makes sense why this firm is willing to do that trading for a fee. So for each individual involved in the transaction, everything looks like it makes sense, but the net result is everyone sees a number that is inauthentic. Well, inauthentic, it is, these are actual numbers that are trading. It's not the exchange making up the numbers, but... It is not uh, organic order flow coming because people want to buy and sell this. Yes, absolutely. As you've you've spent some time in traditional markets as well, right, Colin? So I'm yeah. I guess I'm wondering, do you think that this is something that has been mostly mitigated in traditional markets, or is this something that happens in traditional markets as well? Uh, well, that's a that's a really wide thing. Um, I mean, there's definitely um, different forms of trading that is not coming from organic, let's say, client driven flow. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, I call up my broker and I say, buy, you know. 100 shares of Twitter. I'm just going to say Twitter because Twitter is the thing we're talking about today because Elon Musk is trying to buy it. That would be considered organic flow. I am an investor. I want to purchase 100 shares of Twitter. That goes through a broker. That broker, depending on the setup, will either go directly to the market um, for, for a larger broker or if it's a smaller broker, it may go through a couple of stages and it's different in different markets. There are different market makers that are trading with themselves for a variety of different reasons. They could be managing their book and their risk. They could be managing a derivative position uh, that may have organic flow behind it. They could be managing the bank's prop positions. So that has been cut back quite dramatically depending on the market again. Or they could be managing some, some other smaller things. Now, exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange or anybody else also has these rules about we need to see a market maker may quote uh, no less than this. They need to refresh. They need to send out orders. They need to do all these types of things. So it does exist, but we don't refer to it in, in the same way. I would say, this is my opinion, uh, it's generally because 
all of these uh, exchanges are set up in a place that is very well policed. Uh, if we're talking about the United States, Canada, Western Europe, these markets are very well policed. So even these volumes happening, we say, well, that's happening because we want to make sure that there's constant connectivity. And if nothing happens for a little while, that doesn't really reassure people that you know the market makers are actually there. Now, if I do want to trade into a market maker in those things, I know that there's depth. I can see it. It doesn't just disappear. That isn't necessarily the case in, inside of something like a cryptocurrency exchange, particularly in the US. We have things called speed bumps. If I put out an order, I need to leave it there for some amount of time. It's blazingly fast. It's fractions of a second, but I have to leave it out there for that amount of time. In a cryptocurrency exchange, generally, unless there's some kind of failure, I can pull that out and put it in whenever I want. So the whole order book can just disappear instantly. Um, that is something that generally wouldn't be allowed in a more regulated market. It does exist in some of the, the frontier markets, uh, as we've referred to them in the capital markets, uh, where they don't have that same kind of speed. Is that thing. like pink sheets? No. So this would be uh, different, generally different countries. So this could be uh, Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia. Right. Okay. We're talking about those minor stock exchanges that exist throughout, like the Seychelles Stock Exchange or something like that. It could be much larger than that. Um, we could be talking about, you know, the UAE, Saudi Arabia would fit into those types of buckets. Uh, until recently, they didn't have all these things in, in some very large stock exchanges in East Asia. Places like um, Singapore really only recently put in the same level of rules that you would see in a place like Japan. Do you have anything else on this? Otherwise, I was going to toss it to NFTs. Yeah, so uh, we were talking about wash trading in, in Tether. Uh, so that's that's one I wanted to hit on. So okay. I won't only want to hit on a fraction because I know you guys talk about this a lot. Tether is miles and miles deep, particularly on the wash trading thing. A lot of people look at, you know, the number of Tether outstanding and they look at the volume and they say, well, how does this happen that, you know, there's, I don't even know what the number of Tether is. I'm going to say 100, 100 billion Tether in existence. I'm probably not, not that not far yet. off, am I? It's like yeah, you're, you're not um, You got a few months. <laughs> I'm going to say 100 billion because it's a nice round number. Um, and there's 250 billion in volume. This just isn't possible. What they forget to say is, you know, these trades can happen all the time. Uh, and it can be legitimate flow going through this where I'm buying and selling legitimately. And I trade my single one tether 500 times in a day. This happens a lot. And these, these are not necessarily wash trades. It could be because... I'm actually trading against somebody that wants to buy or sell Bitcoin versus Tether all day long. And that's my business. I'm a market maker or I'm just a trader and I'm actively trading. So that alone doesn't, to me, prove wash trading. And I'm not saying that wash trading isn't a component of this, but that that metric alone is something that um, is slightly different. Now, you're talking about velocity of money. Velocity of money. Yeah. So a lot of people point this out and they say, well, that's not possible because they completely forget velocity of money. Now, would I wash trade Tether uh, for Tether's sake? Uh, I can't see a ton of reasons why you would do it, especially in this market right now. People have brought this up, particularly when we have market downturns in 2018, 2019 style, where there is just less stuff happening and they want to show the, the exchanges are moving, where I, I think there was a famous piece about Kraken uh, and volumes on Tether to USD because they did have that pair. But now a lot of these pairs are, are kind of minor um, and they, they don't always exist in the same exchanges. But if we see something like, uh, if I see a million dollars traded between Bitcoin USDT or half that traded between Ether and USDT on the same exchange, I would consider them generally probably 80, 90% quote unquote, legitimate trades. Um, and that would massively push up the numbers that we would see in, in something like Tether. And that's just because a lot of these traders are trading on very low uh, fees and they're trying to capture a small spread and trading maybe across a couple of different exchanges using trading bots. 
I do want to say that when I was talking about velocity of money back in the day, I, I think I did a piece on it as well. The numbers that we were seeing for the velocity of money, and again, Colin did a good job of explaining this, but I just want to say for anyone who is lost on this, that velocity of money is just how many times, for instance, a single dollar bill would trade hands in a given period of time. So. The more times it trades hands, the higher the velocity of money. At the time that I was following Tether adamantly, the velocity of the money for Tether was something like a thousand percent. Like it was something totally insane, which is not like that does not happen in normal markets at all. Like I like when you would look at when you look at all other stable coins, the velocity of those other stable coins would be something in the range of like 50 to 80%. And I just checked right now and lo and behold, Tether is at 76% velocity. So it is within the range of like normal velocity now, which does point to the fact that like like you said, it seems like wash trading is less of an issue now than it used to be. I, I think that's probably a fair assessment. Cass, and I think well, a lot of things have changed in 2018. For one thing, the market is more liquid now in 2022 than in 2018. And so it's there's a lot less reason to try to fake things, and you're a lot more likely, to, I feel like, to be outed as trying to fake things. So like back in 2018, when you'd look at like the Tether numbers, they were frequently absurd, but they were often dominated by CoinMarketCap reporting Bitforex having 10 times the volume of Bitfinex, right? And other crazy stuff like that, where the numbers being reported by the exchange were clearly not being driven by organic or meaningful flow. And like the, uh, you mentioned the Matt Lysing piece on Kraken's trading of the Tether pair, where he suggested that he thought there was evidence of wash trading because it stayed so close to a dollar. And of course, the response to that is always, you'd see the same mechanism if Tether is actively redeeming and people are willing to try to arbitrage the peg, right? Like trying to look for trades at a specific dollar amount on a pegged asset is probably not the cleanest way to find wash trading because you expect the pegged asset to be worth what it's pegged at. Plus or minus a risk discount or, or yeah. some other kind of premium. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or a demand premium if it's more valuable to yeah. have that than the corresponding dollar. And so like you, you expect it to be pretty damn tight. And so I, I agree with you that that is not sufficient evidence on its face of like a group acting maliciously to, for Tether's benefit, like to do the wash trading to defend Tether. Yeah, it, it's a bit like in the traditional markets, um, something that often gets quoted is, is looking at futures or ETFs on gold. And, and it's actually funny because a few years ago, and I, I stopped kind of following it actively, but there was a lot of scandals about these big gold vaults in China, possibly not having all the gold that they claim to have. And a lot of these futures and ETFs were built off of the notion that it was there. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it was it was a huge scandal. I don't know what happened in the end, whether they figured out where it was or, or got reconciled. I don't know. Um, but the, the there were entire derivatives products that were built off of this that had insane volumes off the notion that this gold was sitting in a vault and you could somehow maybe redeem against it. And that wasn't even always a promise, uh, particularly with futures and particularly with China, where you have uh, a lot of non-deliverable uh, financial products and non-deliverable financial products are super normal. Uh, they happen everywhere. Uh, in the United States, they, they happen to be some of the bigger uh, products, particularly when we talk about financial products or some of the commodities, like I was looking at cheese, you can't, uh, or dairy, you can't actually take the underlying because of some, some rule. No! <laughs> uh, but you could still have this really high volume that didn't really speak to the velocity of it or even the redeemability of it. Again, I'm not going to get into that on, on Tether. You guys have covered that uh, with people that are much more knowledgeable than I am, but just to kind of bring up one of those weird financial factoids. 
And I mean, even in the uh, mortgage-backed security crisis, we ended up with CDOs dwarfing the size of CDSs, dwarfing the size of mortgage-backed bonds. As you go up the levels of derivative, you end up with higher nominal volumes and dollar amounts being thrown around. Yeah, it's just it's easier to deal with those types of things than it is to deal with the underlying. While we're here, though, now I think it's this is actually a good segue because we're talking about liquidity issues. We're talking about wash trading. We're talking about all this uh, all this stuff that was at least before quite evident in the cryptocurrency markets. But Colin, you're like a big fan of NFTs. And I love the JPEGs, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, something that the NFTs, well, in a sense, don't, I guess they do suffer from it, but in some sense they don't because they're supposed to be a liquid. They're designed to be a liquid. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm wondering what you think. I wouldn't say that Bennett and I, I don't think we hate NFTs as much as people probably think we do. It's not like we plan on ever buying them, but I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think we hate them as much as everyone would suspect we, we hate them. But what do you think we're missing? What, are, what, what do you think we, and what do you think we disagree with uh, about this stuff uh, with you? Okay, well, let, let's take it. Let's take it back, and then then we can have a discussion about that. Let me define, you know, why I think NFTs are interesting. Let's start there. One of the things that was really interesting to watch in the fungible crypto uh, community, particularly happening from 2017 onwards, when these things started to get popular, it did happen before. You had a lot of people that invested money into these and became part of a community. And the joke was, you know. You either traded and made money or you lost money and you became part of a community. You became a community <laughs> member. So it was, uh, you know, lovingly referred to as a bag, hel- bag holder self-help group. Uh, when you get onto these telegram, you know, everybody, oh, yeah, this thing's going to break out imminently and go to the moon and all this. And it, it's it, there's a lot of hopium. Um, but <laughs> what, what did actually happen out of this is you do have a lot of people that, you know, started to make friends with other people and started to talk about this, their favorite token and their favorite project um, and get to know each other. Um, I mean, you guys, very different, but uh, started to get to know each other, I guess, through a token uh, in a way. Um, but it, it's created lots <laughs> it's of true. different communities. Um, I'm not wrong. Like, that exist outside of you know the pure speculating on this thing. Now, where NFTs kind of come into this is a lot of people can have a financial motive, but a lot of what you really see in this NFT uh, investment or, or coming into these things is people actively looking for a community, uh, a way to to relate with people on some kind of common manner, whereas they may have nothing else in common with them. Um, PFPs, uh, profile picture NFTs are really at the forefront of this. So people go, you know, I've got my ape or I've got penguins, I love penguins. But you kind of bond with people that are working in the industry or involved in the industry. And people have started to form different groups talking about things that have nothing to do with crypto. Um, I saw somebody putting up, they, they were running a whole thing about uh, how to use Photoshop because it was somebody that knew how to use Photoshop really well. And they taught people uh, that had Penguin uh, PFPs how to use it. Obviously, it's much more open t- than this, but they're flushing this thing through the Discord. People are talking, you know, when they go to conferences, they meet up, uh, you know, we need to get an Airbnb together. Well, okay, I'll go into my Discord and get an Airbnb with somebody else that has a board ape. It's created a community that can exist in the real world. And I think given kind of their rise to popularity in 2020, kind of fit in with the, the whole COVID thing going on where people weren't leaving and they wanted to connect with the outside world. I think that's quite interesting. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they're perfect and beyond reproach, but I do think that that's an interesting dynamic. Well, I do want to say there two two things there. One, a good friend of mine at Eat Cook Cryptos, Majin's uncle, he's awesome, and we bonded over hot sauce. Like that is that is our initial bond was him like showing off his food and his hot sauce that he makes, and me being like. I- I want hot sauce. Give me hot sauce. So I think that there's before NFTs, there has been people, whether or not we're arguing about Tether or talking about Bitcoin or talking about smart contracts, there's been people who have always been seeking out like, yeah, I'm just also looking for people to talk to about food or talk to about motorcycles or whatever, right? I mean, I think that's long existed outside of the NFT mm-hmm. space. But but I also think that like I recently I think people probably assume assumed it was just simply a joke. But the way I think about NFTs is that I collect dumb Canadian shit coins. I collect physical Canadian shit coins and they're very stupid. Like there's no denying how stupid it is. I my most recent purchase is for 30 Canadian dollar coin. I paid like $100 for it. What the fuck is wrong with me, right? I get that. I get that that is like, okay, so clearly I'm buying something that is not actually as valuable as it's suggested, and it's because I think it's fun and cool, and that's it. That's like my explanation. There's no good, there's no like actual explanation outside of, I guess I'm speculating and having fun speculating on a, a, a little pretty thing. Do you think that's like a pretty good summation of what NFTs represent? I think it's very much like that. Um, the the thing I like to compare NFT communities with uh, is a country club. Um, I go in and I buy a spot in a country club by buying this NFT and showing off that I'm part of this country club. Um, and some country clubs are relatively inexpensive to get in. People want to join the country club or the golf club or whatever whatever you're into um, because there's a utility access to it. And you know maybe I meet my neighbors and my friends. There's some other ones that are very exclusive and very, very expensive. And the reason I want to join it is because I will meet people that are considered higher on the social scale than me. You know, I meet CEOs uh, and those will cost 10 times as much. NFTs have the same breakdown. I'm going to go ahead and guess uh, people that collect coins probably fall into different buckets. You know, I, I collected coins when I was young and I have weird pennies from, you know, the 1920s. Uh, those probably are worth a whole lot less than your your brand new spanking you know mint uh, Canadian stuff. I doubt uh, it. I don't think I don't think mine I don't think my mine are anything special <laughs> either. Cass is not an investor. No. He is a community They're more expensive than the than the pennies that I collected. <laughs> but you know you bond with people over these things, and you know as humans we need to bond with people, and we do it over a variety of things. It could be Canadian coins, it could be JPEGs, it could be Ferraris, it could be country clubs, whatever it is. You're seeking to mingle with people in what's perceived as a group with a common interest. And and sometimes it can be aspirational and I'm willing to pay up for it. One of the things that I would say is probably applies to your coins more than my country, my country club or a Ferrari is there is an expectation that, you know, when I'm done with this community or whatever, I can sell my seat uh, in the community. Uh, I can sell all of my Canadian coins and go, you know, buy other coins or whatever, or I can sell my NFT. Now, that does give us, a, of course, a profit motive. And you can say this is good, this is bad, whatever. Um, but that is one of the key differences between the pure country club or people collecting, I don't know, whatever has zero retail resale value and, and no assumption of speculation inside of it. I, I wouldn't even put in, you know, pogs or anything like that in there. But 
you know, I guess when we were young, we probably didn't try to sell pogs on a secondary market. We did trade them with each other, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we should have probably tried to sell them, but now they're just sitting somewhere. They're probably worth a lot of money now. I don't know. <laughs> I, do I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. I doubt it. But most, most collectibles aren't. Part, part of my struggle with NFTs and like the more community focused DAOs, which is what they're calling themselves, whatever. <laughs> I can understand joining a community around a common interest. Like Cass and I originally bonded over Tether and then coffee and then food. And then like, <laughs> and I play Dungeons and Dragons and have made friends playing this weird imaginary mm -hmm. game. And so my ability to criticize people for doing weird and imaginary things is limited. Um, <laughs> but like, Tell me about I, I, guess, I, I guess when I look at something like, like the largest NFTs, like a bored ape or a crypto punk or something like that. I don't understand what interest ties together a group of like bored ape yacht club holders or what interest ties together a group of crypto punk holders besides like a belief in value accrual to profile picture NFTs. Yeah. So, I mean, look, there's definitely, that is no denying it. That is a big undertone that people speculate on it. And that does tie people together. That does foster some of the early communities. I think within something like a board Apes, I'm, I'm not in the board Ape community, but there are a lot of VCs and there are a lot of people that uh, are in that circle. Uh, they're, you know, very famous uh, people that have some of these. Not all of it is legitimate. I know that that's been pointed out, but there are people that, that do actively participate in this community. And by being in the same discord as them, you as, you know, the lonely board ape holder that got in very early, but otherwise has no claim to fame is speaking to them on the same level. And they do have real in life gathering. You know, you remember the famous video in New York at NFT New York, which was quite cringe, but obviously these people do enjoy getting together and, and being with each other in real life as they do on Discord or in other mediums. Um, there's also the whole thing about, you know, lots of people see, okay, this board ape wrote something on Twitter. I'm going to focus on that tweet. I'm going to like it. I'm going to retweet it, whatever it is that you might not do if somebody isn't in your community. Again, stupid internet points, but these are the types of things that we have been taught as a population mean something to us. Like you, you like to put out a tweet and have more retweets on it, right? That feels good. Is it, is it worth the, you know, the price of a house to have that? Probably not, <laughs> but um, these are the types of things that, that form around the community. Lots of these other ones, um, you do have some that are more focused on um, entrepreneurship. Uh, there's, there's one that I'm involved with that happens to have a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are doing startups at different variations. And, you know that you can go in there and you say, hey, I need, do you know somebody that does this? Or I'm hiring somebody that does this. And it's just a very good form to do that. Do you need to have an NFT? No, but it's kind of a, a I, I don't want to say shilling point, but uh, it, it's kind of a, a common a common area that people know that they can come to. And if they see this out there, they know, okay, there's a good chance that I can go talk to them. And I, you know, I, I live in France. Uh, I went to a French business school and I know that if somebody went to the same business school as me, even if they went 20 years before I went there, I can send them an email and nine out of times, nine out of 10 times they will respond to me. I guess people at Harvard probably have a similar thing. I would assume. I don't know. I didn't go to Harvard, but that is the dynamic you have here. That costs a lot of money to go to business school, right? Um, and it costs a lot of money to go to someplace like Harvard. If you put in the price of pulling board apes away, <laughs> um, some of these NFTs that cost $10,000, and I know that there are people in there that are... Um, successful investors or um, successful uh, entrepreneurs, and I can access them for that price. And there's a pretty good chance that I can resell it for about what I paid, slightly more, slightly less, whatever. For a lot of people, that makes a lot of sense. Now, <laughs> we can talk about money games. We can talk about how realistic any of this is. And, you know, I live in a small town and I was thinking about this before I called you, where people do real things and, and talking about these intangible things makes no sense to anybody around here. I mean, people 
fish. Like, that's the job you do around here. You fish or you build boats. Like, that's it. And I lived in London before and I worked in banking. I lived in New York and I worked in banking. And you talk about these intangible things and it clicks. It makes sense. <laughs> uh, saying, oh, yeah, I spent $50,000 to join this NFT community because I wanted to chat with this guy. I got his contact great. And then I sold it on to the next sucker that's, that wants to do the same thing. <laughs> that doesn't seem as stupid as it just sounded coming out of my mouth. Right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're making an interesting point, but I do think that there's there's a few issues that I I, th I think about when you talk about this stuff. Like, for instance, we had Mooncat on, and she she talked about how the whole like co concept of like how the meet and greets for celebrities are generally generally priced low enough or something so that at least some people who aren't hyper wealthy can still meet people like Britney Spears or whatever, and how. This seems to be pricing these people out and how this seems to be like a way for people to interact with their fans, for instance, and price out the pores and make it so like only the rich people get to interact with them. And I think there's some truth to that, perhaps. And I also think you're talking about this club and, and the positives of like being in this this club and stuff like that. But we should talk about the negatives, which are quite apparent on Twitter, where we're constantly seeing people go like, oh, my bored ape is gone now, you know, or shit, I lost my bored ape, or oh, I got hacked, or whatever. Um, and it happens are, like are, are almost- crypto punks, Are crypto punks actually smarter and better at OPSEC, or are they just smart enough not to say anything? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I but I am I am just I'm I'm wondering what the yeah what your response to these kind of like negative aspects are. Okay, let, let me let me attack your question about punks. Um are they better at offside? <laughs> I would ask that not only of the NFT communities, are people that hold Bitcoin that, you know, accidentally screw up and give out or ether or whatever it is and accidentally screw up and give out half a million dollars because they typed in their their password and get robbed. You see that, you see it a lot less now uh, because the Bitcoin community, for all of their faults, is very focused on teaching each other uh, how to do better OPSEC. But I remember seeing tons of that, people going, oh, I just lost half a million dollars or I know people that um, that were out getting rugged um, because they were putting all this money into unaudited contracts and losing millions and millions of dollars every day because somebody put a backdoor into their contract and didn't verify it. Nobody thought to even look. Um, or they did and they didn't know what they were doing. This happens all over the place. It is bad that it happens. We're, we're laughing about it now. But, you know, there is real financial loss from this. Uh, and it is very unfortunate. I would say um, that for a lot of people, the NFT experience is their first foray into crypto. You know, they probably went in and put their first, you know, whatever money they put in on Coinbase uh, with a credit card or a bank transfer, immediately took it out went in and, and bought on OpenSea uh, a board ape or whatever, generally when the price was significantly lower. I, I don't imagine that there's a lot of people that come in first time and spend $250,000 to buy a board ape. I'm sure it has happened, um, but I think it, a lot of it was back when these things were, you know, a few thousand dollars maybe, and they said, hey, I'll take a gamble and spend a few thousand dollars and not go to Vegas for the weekend or whatever. Now, because it's their first time in, uh, and because your only experience maybe was trading a little bit of on, on Coinbase, uh, you didn't learn a lot of these things. Now, I'm not singling out the Board Ape community as being bad, but there are, as we've seen, a lot of people in that community who become quite widely known possibly because of this effect of being in this objectively very successful uh, project. So being higher profile than some of the other ones. But I'm sure it happens in, you know, random green frog NFT uh, number 413 
we just don't see it to the same extent. Or if it does happen and they broadcast it, well, they only have three followers, so nobody knows. No, nobody picks up on these things. There are some that tend to be older, and, and I'm going to come back to something you said about being priced out. Um, things like punks. Punks tend to skew more towards the people that have been around NFTs for a while. And I think that the way that punks were launched, it was really never launched to my understanding, as the idea to be a PFP. It was just an experiment. It was fun. Somebody put it out there and they said, hey, we can do this. Um, just like we had CryptoKitties. And there was really no, it, for a long time. The first time they put it out there, it got all fucked up and they had to put it out there a second time. The yeah, version one contract had some weird bug in it. Exactly. Yeah. And you could have infinite mints on these things. But it was just kind of that stepping stone. And when we did kind of solidify these things, and we had V2, even for a long time before it got popular, you had people that had been around the cryptocurrency space and said, hey, this is kind of fun. Oh, I'm going to use this for my Twitter profile picture. Uh, you should do the same thing because you've got one of those. And it just kind of naturally evolved. And they, by happenstance or whatever, had 10,000 of these things that existed. And 10,000 is quite a small number, uh, especially when they're worth very little and people can acquire dozens or hundreds of these things. That really reduces the number of hands that can have them. Now, everybody is doing a similar number of mints of you know mid four digits to low five digit numbers of mints mostly because of the fact that that that's what punks did there are lots of them that have started to look and and kind of coming back to your being priced out of these things there are attempts to kind of expand this where a project wants to do something more than just mint and earn off the mint and maybe some royalties for a few weeks and they're thinking okay well i want to be something that's accessible and i want the the worth of these things to be somewhere between let's say a hundred dollars and a thousand dollars like I'm just going to say that that's the market that they want to attract. How many of these things do I need to put out? Do I need to have a fixed number? Do I need to have an expanding number? If we look at things like games, maybe they're looking for to target a market where an asset's worth $5 and $100, and maybe I need to adjust how many can exist. Maybe they can be burnt. Maybe they can be minted, depending on what's going on. But I, I do want to have some aspects of these things that are somewhat controlled. Uh, and I think those projects will be very successful. Will they aim towards where we're, where we're going Currently, I'd say probably not, but they will be thought out by marketing teams rather than an artist and a dev. They get together and go, hey, we know this thing works. We know we can make money. Let's just launch it and see what happens. And most of them fail, but obviously not all of them. So you mentioned you don't know that those will be where you think we're going. Uh, where do you think we're going? What's the end state or the next state at least? I, I have a couple of ideas of where I, I, I wouldn't say that I definitely have answers or that this would even be um, a full picture of the market. But I think things that are evolving are, are quite interesting is using NFTs within different games. I think the PFP community will exist, whether it'll refine down into fewer different collections that have higher numbers. I don't know. Um, but I think that there is clearly a desire to have them. Where I'm personally very focused is um, within SVGs or scalable uh, vector graphics being built directly into the NFT. So here the idea. Um, so Loot was kind of one of the ones that popularized this. this Didn't is, it, doesn't Uniswap do that? Uniswap uh, V3 does this as well. I, I personally think it's quite cool because um, most NFTs, the, the images that we see, the JPEGs, tend to live either on a centralized server someplace, maybe it's AWS, or an IPFS, uh, which is kind of in the middle or some other solution, but it's definitely not on the blockchain. And what that means, pulling aside anything about immutability and all that great stuff, but my smart contract cannot actually interact with this. Somebody outside needs to update these things, change them, whatever, and pass in a new image that I now see on OpenSea or, or in my wallet. With things that are on chain, I can go and I can poke them uh, with a smart contract transaction. So. The idea of having things that evolve and do different things or can be picked up by different contracts is quite interesting. And especially if we pull it out of the Ethereum mainnet focus into some of these 
alternative uh, L1s or L2s, transactions become cheap enough that I can actually interact with these things on a regular basis. And I think that that will open the door to say, you know, what other things can we do with NFTs where it's not solely about the image on it. Uh, we want to create something more. And maybe that's extrapolated into different layers that may have nothing to do with the blockchain, but we still have this kind of base asset that we can come back to. We can pull apart, we can share, we can put into a DAO and vote about what happens with it, whatever you want to do. But it starts to become a building block rather than the end state, uh, which we currently view something like a PFP as. Okay, so, so what you see as the next evolution is NFTs that, well, it sounds almost like in many respects they'd be small smart contracts themselves small set uh, with configurable parameters that can be called by agreed upon signed whitelisted wallets or stuff to change parameters to change features of these nfts is that what you're describing just make sure i understand it yeah yeah basically so think about it um you know as 2017 icos were to DeFi. Uh, I think pfps will be to whatever comes next uh in nfts being able to do things that are more interesting than just speculating on the price going up and down or setting them as your Twitter profile picture. There's so many people who are putting forth use cases that I just don't get, though. Like, there's a lot of people saying stuff like, it'll change ticketing forever. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, why? I just bought a ticket for the ECC conference in Paris in July, and they use this NFT platform. And it was just an awful experience to use it. I would wish that on no one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, you know, they, they tried it, like, to their credit, but, like, there's all kinds of problems with it and maybe some teething problems, but I, I agree with you. And I, I first got involved in crypto in 2014 and 2015, and I worked at a bank. Uh, and of course, banks all wanted to talk about blockchains at the time. And I remember reading these articles and it was the common joke, you know, can blockchain solve X? Um, and of course, it could solve whatever, you know, it could cure cancer, it could, <laughs> you know, alleviate poverty, it could solve, you know, wars amongst countries, whatever it was, actually, people are still talking about that. But <laughs> there are a lot of people that don't understand what they're talking about and have no subject matter expertise. And they're think fluencers or whatever they are. Uh, and we listen to them for some reason about things that are highly technical and highly complex or very limited in what they can deliver. Uh, and I think, you know, David Gerard, you guys had on, he he was very active um, during the blockchain time saying, well, this thing is just functionally a linked list, right? And if you just want to put a blockchain in there, you want to put a linked list in there, you're not actually changing the problem. The problems you have are bigger and outside of that. It's not how you save data. Uh, and I would say the same thing about NFTs. You know, I remember you were criticizing not too long ago, people saying, you know, oh yeah, you can put uh, words and, and um, uh, what was it, journalism inside of NFTs. Um, and things yeah, that yeah. just have no grounding grounding in reality. Yeah. Like, how does that change anything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I think, in a sense, almost connects us back to some of the ICO culture problems that PTK was trying to point out. A lot of people turned to ICOs not as a technical solution, but because it offered this really easy way to get immediate liquidity, to get this investment, to get this liquidity, to be able to sell these things and have a secondary market for these things without having to build it yourself. So you hear people say things like NFT will be great for tickets, not because it solves any of the inherent ticketing related questions, but because it makes it easy for people to sell their tickets. And I think that's even in some sense consistent, Colin, with what you were describing as one of the advantages of NFTs for this kind of community thing, is that you are effectively purchasing a seat at the table of this community. And when you no longer want to be a part of it, there's already a way for you to sell that and leave without there having to be the more messy human processes of you having to negotiate with other people to figure out how to do that. And so a lot of times our criticisms around 
blockchain, NFTs, DAOs, and all these things is the technical solution you're using isn't solving any of the problems you claim you have because the problems they're claiming they have are not the problems they actually want to solve. Like many of the ICOs weren't interested in using blockchain to solve a problem. They were interested in creating a resaleable token. You're definitely absolutely right for a very large number of ICOs. Um, but I think that there were a lot of projects who shoehorn uh, a token, whether it's an NFT or fungible token in there, because they have an idea that they truly believe in. Um, and they want to. They need to raise money to execute on this idea. And they find a way to make the NFT or the blockchain or whatever it is fit into what they're doing, even if it's not necessary. But I wouldn't necessarily say that this is an act of bad faith. Um, you know, I might be trying to build a, you know, random fisherman down here uh, needs to buy a new boat. Um, so he's going to tokenize and make a DAO out of his boat because he knows that he can raise the money. Do I need a token representing ownership of the boat down here that the fisherman is using? Absolutely not. But he knows if he goes to the bank, they're going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks and maybe they'll loan him money, whereas he knows he can go to the crowd and, and get this money. And I think something that often is, is overlooked is, you know, back in 2017 and 2018, when we had ICOs in places like China. We also had the explosion of crowdfunding. And that wasn't something that was really popular in the US to the same extent as places like Europe and, and Asia. But crowdfunding, going out, raising five dollars from a million different people was really, really popular. Um, and I think that that's something that ICOs are just another extension of, albeit with less regulation. And NFTs are another way to do that. Again, you're right. It's not necessary. but it doesn't I, I will <laughs> certainly concede it's not necessarily bad faith. But in the vast majority of cases, I can recall reading at at least some point in their white paper documentation or marketing materials, they lie about what the thing is capable of doing. And so as soon as they do that, I dump it in the bad faith bucket. Oh, yeah, and that's very fair. <laughs> like, I, I understand why they do it. but <laughs> Well, I, I want to say that you're talking about crowdfunding projects. And if you want to talk about an industry rife with fraud... I think look no further than crowdfunding projects. I, to me, if I go right now and look at the list of highest funded crowd crowdfunded projects, EOS, top of the list. I think we can all agree that that is... <laughs> There's a lot of crossover between crowdfunding and tokens, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At best, EOS is a, a sorry, sorry attempt at trying to to create a new blockchain. At worst, it was definitely a cash grab. So I think there's like, that's number one. But then number two, you have Star Citizen. Number three, Filecoin. Number four, Tezos. Number f number five, the DAO. Number six, Siren Labs. The DAO was great, I by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that worked out really well. Um, uh, but we can look outside of the blockchain things, which are all showing up here and have done miserable. I don't even know what this is. Status? What's status? Do you guys remember status? Status.im, right? I don't remember what they do, but there's something to do with crypto. <laughs> do they do anything anymore? I but, would Elio Motors. I like it's all it's scams up and down as far as I'm concerned. Not to call none of these. I'm not actually expressing that any of these are scams. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, these all sound bad. And I'm just wondering, like, so if if we're trying to fix it, how is blockchain going to help fix what is obviously a problematic industry? Okay, so let me break it into two parts here. A basic tenet in modern finance and banking is that money will flow uh, to where it's cheapest, right? Um, this is exactly why central banks lower interest rates. They want to stimulate credit. They want people to go out and spend money, right? You have the same, same thing that exists of raising money <laughs> from public markets. If I know that all I need to do is put up a three-page white paper and I can raise half a million dollars to accomplish whatever I'm trying to accomplish, assuming I'm trying to accomplish something that isn't just outright fraud, like I want to take your money and deliver you nothing. That is one bucket, right? But there are people that are trying to do something. Uh, and this is what I was saying, you know, 
where I would argue with the faith, they're trying to create something and they believe in what they're trying to do. And it is an honest attempt. It may be a flawed attempt and it may be doomed to failure. But I, you know, as somebody that needs to go out and raise half a million dollars to see my vision out, and I work, you know, every waking moment trying to accomplish this vision, even if it's never going to take off because I'm trying to, you know, I don't know, make a, a condom for a dolphin. I don't know. Something stupid. Like, uh... It doesn't mean that using crowdfunding uh, is a bad idea or is directly fraudulent. It's just a dumb idea. And I went to the easiest place that I know if I could get money. And I would have gone to the bank or, you know, borrowed it from my friends and family if they gave me the money, right? That's, it's just there. It's just a dumb idea that happens to use the easiest available means. Now, coming back into the second part of it, how does a blockchain solve, you know, my, my new business of putting condoms on a dolphin? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> But <laughs> there are people that out there that can put together things that they maybe heard from somebody else that didn't understand the blockchain and through Chinese whispers, I need to put some kind of like provenance technology on the, the latex when it came out of Malaysia before it got put on the dolphin. I don't know. But there are people out there that definitely want to do that and that adds some kind of value and it makes the product at least make sense to the other people that are willing to put their hard-earned money into my business of putting condoms on dolphins. It's Long Island blockchain. It's really, it's unfortunate that so many people want to put condoms on dolphins too. That seems like a weird thing that is, <laughs> I can't believe that's such a popular cause, but okay. This can't be good for the dolphin populations. Yeah, I thought they were endangered. <laughs> Colin, why do you hate the dolphins? <laughs> yeah, why do, why do so many blockchainers want to support this project? I'm so mad right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, Colin, I think I wish, I wish that we had more coiners like you. I, I just think that there aren't, I think, as many as you would suggest there are that that acknowledge that a lot of this is just pure hype and speculation, and that's kind of the fun part. I, like, if more people were willing to admit that, I think BT and I would have a lot less of a problem with a lot of people. So, so it's, it's my job to go out and convince everybody to tell you that they think that the hype is the fun part. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make our life easier. Yeah, and isn't that what's important? <laughs> you know, you know, I, I do have a good solution for how we do this. We're going to set up a DAO. We're going to issue a token. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. So we use all the money for advocacy, of course. <laughs> thank you for thank you for joining us, Colin. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to uh, throw out there before we um, call it, but um... just just buy PTK <laughs> if you can. <laughs> Yeah, good you luck can finding find it. anyone willing to yeah. part with it. <laughs> I wonder if I'm even still able to access the wallet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, well, that's classic. You and you and Josh and everyone else always <laughs> seems to lose the wallet keys of the uh, scam that you've created. But hey, it's it's the secret to true it, diamond hands. An unfortunate boating accident. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but. <laughs> Everyone probably knows, uh, if they follow me on Twitter, you did promise me a baguette as payment for this. Definitely. Um, and Definitely. in DMs, you did say I'm glad four. you disclosed that. It's, it's good and fair of you. <laughs> so, so come right out to France, and I will make sure that you were delivered you know, with baguettes all you want for the entire time you're here. It's a deal, um, and now people understand that we do accept payments uh, for guests to come on, but they're usually you're, it's going to have to be food-related payments. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, thanks again, Colin, and uh, what a, 
What a joy to have you. So you, you you're you. going to have to watch out now because people are going to want to advertise <laughs> and actually like send you caviar and champagne, right? <laughs> hey, I'm not going to say no to caviar. You also might not get it. I'm not, I'm not confirming for anybody that if you send us food, you're, you're getting on the podcast, but... It wouldn't hurt, so go ahead and send it. I mean, we'll gladly listen, accept listen. food. If you're like a ICO who thinks that sending us caviar and champagne to get on the show is going to ha- result in an episode that makes you look good and brings in new investors, <laughs> you might want to reassess your priors. <laughs> and, se- and send the stuff. Go ahead and send it anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> You'll take acceptance before you, before you have them on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. In a peace offering to the cryptocurrency, blockchain, and NFT communities. Crypto Critics Corner is going to be doing an NFT marketplace on CryptoCriticsCorner.org. It's going to be amazing. We want to help support the causes that you guys care about. So we're looking forward to putting condoms on these dolphins. If it's important to Colin, it's important to us. We're looking forward to releasing that in quarter six of 2029. Wait, quarter six? 